just entered episode zero one zero of the bit beacon broadcast we're recording this on november 21st or sorry november 22nd mm-hmm. about a week before we're going to release this episode we prefer not to pre-record episodes but one of us is going out of town yep that'd be me so uh you know we just got to do what we got to do to make sure there's an episode every week that's our goal. That is our goal. Hopefully we never mess that up. And we have stuck to it for 10 episodes now. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen if one of us, like, goes out of town for, like, more yeah, than a week. that would be tough. Yeah, I mean... Well, we'll solutions will be in place by then, hopefully. Right. I mean, we'll, we'll, we're going to miss an episode one week at some point in the future. Yeah. But hopefully that won't happen too much. Um, since we're recording this back to back, we don't really have anything new to talk about in terms of what have we been playing, what have we been doing. I'm Rick, and oh yeah, my co-host Taylor Kodax, whatever you like to call me. I forgot to introduce ourselves yeah. because we're doing this back to back. I'm confused. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm lost. So it's a new thing, but you know, Rick's here to guide me through it. Take yep. my hand. I, I got you covered. We're gonna get through this together. Yep. Um, so we're going to jump straight into our first discussion topic, and that's uh, both of us wanting to wish Shigeru Miyamoto a very happy birthday. Very happy birthday. He's at the he's at the golden age of 71. 71, and you probably wouldn't think he's beyond his late 50s. He seems pretty... Pretty spry yeah, for 71. Yeah, very spry, running out on stage with all kinds of props. Yeah, I mean, I don't... Yeah. Not, not so much anymore, but... That was like a long time ago. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, his birthday was on November 16th, so in the last week since we recorded, uh, his birthday popped up. I know 71's not like a, a milestone birthday. 70 no. would have been, right. you know, but, a good you one. Know, we, only, we, we only started this this year. Yeah, so I mean, we... we, we weren't able to celebrate his 70th birthday but i just thought we could uh just talk about his career talk about his legacy definitely um uh real quick with uh everyone listening um so shigeru miyamoto if you don't know which you do know if you've been listening we, we've talked about him on a few occasions oh yeah he's basically the he... guy at nintendo that propelled them to success in the video game world yes nintendo would still be making cards Probably, if if not for Shigeru Miyamoto. Yeah. Playing um, cards, I mean. In a large way, he is Mr. Video Games. He didn't invent the video game. No. But he brought, like, Shigeru Miyamoto's Nintendo brought back video games from an industry depression. Right. That would have ended the medium. Yeah. Um, and. He, I, I mean, like, modern video games start. With Shigeru Miyamoto. Yes. Like, so many things that he designed are still in place throughout all kinds of genres and uh, of, of video games to this day. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you, you have the really popular Souls games, like Elden Ring and Dark Souls and Demon Souls. Mm-hmm. And like, it's like a huge genre now. And those games are directly inspired by The Legend of Zelda. The creator of uh that series uh miyazaki has said that he directly credits 
like the Legend of Zelda. Yeah. Like if you look at the original Legend of Zelda, that game is brutal. Oh, the game is yeah. hard. So, it lets you go anywhere. It doesn't hold your hand. I'm going to say something about modern games, particularly indie games that sort of brand themselves as a Dark Souls-like okay. game. Just referring basically to the, the difficulty level. Right. You know? But if you really think about it, those old NES games that Shigeru Miyamoto is largely credited with... Um, Super Mario World was pretty hard. Yeah. You know, uh, Legend of Zelda, pretty hard. Even the original Metroid, pretty hard. Other NES games that Shigeru wasn't involved with on NES, Silver Surfer is the best example. Right. Uh, extremely difficult games. Try getting through those games. They are, in my opinion, harder than Dark Souls. Yeah. You know? Um, oh, yeah. 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 And I mean, the Dark Souls games... They're hard, but, like, they're designed in a way that you're supposed to try and learn, mm -hmm. try and learn, and then eventually overcome. Right. And like, that's the game design. That's what the developer doesn't want you to just win instantly every single time. Exactly. And that can be frustrating for some players. I, I feel like, too, like, getting shot or getting slashed with a sword is doing the amount of damage that it should be doing like in real life right like, you know 80 percent of your health right yeah, yeah. You know? exactly like if you take a hit you feel it yeah you take a second hit you're dead you're dead yeah yeah um so yeah in that sense uh that that's the goal of those games uh but uh, i should clarify you mentioned metroid i don't think shigeru miyamoto had much to do with metroid. I, on second thought yeah. i think you're right um let's talk about some of the infamous franchises that he created oh famous oh yeah well yeah famous they're not infamous they're yeah no they're, <laughs> they're a good kind of famous You're right um so don't you have donkey kong with the original arcade game yes and it's... and real quick just that alone donkey kong ported to everything at the time yeah like ColecoVision, intellivision atari yeah like it, it was on everything arcade Everything. Mm -hmm. um, and then you had other studios doing their own Donkey Kong, like, versions for, you know, to get around licensing and stuff yeah. like that. You, I think there, I don't know, either Donkey Kong or a clone on the Vectrex, the old, like, I think General Electric oh, okay. Vectrex tabletop console. Was that the one with the cartridge? Yeah, it was, uh, it was like, vector graphics. Oh, okay. And yeah, they did have cartridges. Okay. Um... Donkey Kong had a massive impact, inspired entire companies. Yeah, I mean, generations of game developers, too. Yeah. People inspired. Um, he, after Donkey Kong, he created the Mario Brothers arcade game, mm -hmm. which would, you know, was like a versus game yeah. where, you know, you had the POW and, yeah. you know, the enemies on the screen and you were trying to, like, basically... But you weren't fighting each other, you were doing an arcade-style gameplay scheme of stomping on turtles and i mean i think they were still keeping track of individual scores oh yeah no they were no i mean like it wasn't like so you could grab a shell and throw it at you know luigi or mario or whoever that's true yeah yeah that is true i always saw it as like a competitive versus it oh no it is definitely you could choose to go at it with a second player and be like hey let's try to co-op this and get as far as we can right kind of a thing um and, you know, that obviously went on to spawn the Super Mario Brothers games, mm -hmm. which, you know, 
defined side-scrolling video games until now. Still. Right, yeah, literally inventing the platformer yeah. genre. Like, that's... Think about how big that is. Yeah. Um, then, of course, The Legend of Zelda. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, say no more. Yeah. Uh, Excite Bike. Yeah. Which is a classic NES game. Um, then you have Duck Hunt. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, the NES Zapper. I it mean, invented light gun yeah. gameplay, as far as I know. I don't, I don't... There might have been an arcade. Probably was arcade. Yeah. This is the first time you got that kind of experience at home. Right. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, Star Fox. Yeah. Um, invented 3D graphics. Yeah. On hardware that probably had no right <laughs> doing right. 3D graphics. Right. Um, and then in more recent years, I mean, I say more recent, but I'm talking more than 20 years ago now. We have Pikmin mm-hmm. in 2001 or 2002. Uh, Dogs yep. on the DS, yep. which was a huge hit. And then, of course, on the Wii, uh, he created the the me concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the little characters that you create and customize their shape and faces so, and everything. There's something I'd like to add to this list. That's... I mean, he. Let's talk about me's for yeah. one quick second. Sure, yeah. He like before all these like custom emojis and avatars and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that happened on the Wii. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Um... Like, it, that predates emojis. <laughs> Does it? Like, emojis existed via mobile, text, phone, SMS type stuff. I'm just thinking, if we go back to 2006, what do phones look like then? They're flip phones, and, you know, you're not even... I don't even know that they have keyboards yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, Blackberries, I guess. I guess you're right. Okay, I don't... I mean, maybe emoticons I definitely existed, right. but... That's true. But, I mean, making a whole, like, avatar yes. of your character. Yeah, and then uh, I remember Microsoft tried to copy them with their... Yeah, the Xbox Live I think avatars. it was just called Avatar. Yeah. Um, what, what's something I'm missing on the list? Um, so, I'm pulling up some information real fast here on the fly. But, uh, it, it, so, Miyamoto actually started with Nintendo, I believe it was... It was the late 70s. I want to say 70... Eight, uh, or 79. Anyways, his very first task while being, um, you know, at Nintendo was to design the, uh, the casing for one of their first generation consoles. Okay. And that being the, uh, um, is, I'm trying to find the name of it here. Uh, it was actually their third, uh, color tv game okay um which was block cut uh it's a japanese word here so yeah i mean companies used to you know you did they didn't make consoles they would make a device that only played one single game right which was some degree of a pong clone exactly you know it was a I'm not finding it right off the fly here but all right <laughs> yeah i own it actually okay uh and yeah, it was their third uh, installment of these TV games, uh, which had basically taken Pong and placed it in, instead of, you know, paddles, you're breaking blocks with, oh, with, with the, yeah. you know, like, so actually making new Right, games, a new game with a similar concept. Using Pong as sort of an engine. Right. You know, 
Um, and yeah, he designed the exterior of that particular console. So while he he hasn't been actively creating new titles as much anymore, not mm-hmm. since effectively the DS and GameCube era, uh, he continues to have a huge role at Nintendo, mm-hmm. essentially being like the final creative say in almost any project there. Yeah. Especially with the titles that he was involved in originally creating. I would say that he had more of a a controlling hand over things um, earlier in his career. Now he is a little more removed, but... I think he's a mentor more than anything now. And he seems to be involved with a lot of Nintendo's other new ventures, like the theme park and the movies, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Right. Um, But uh, He's kind of doing, choosing what he loves I think so. Way. You yeah. know, he's at that age where he's like, I don't want to be in the office all day. Right. I want to go out and do new things that I haven't been able to do before. Right, movies and theme parks. Yeah, so, I mean, that's got to be, you know, really exciting for him. Definitely. Um, when he was in the office, I remember developers like Argonaut and uh, one other. That, Dylan Cuthbert? Yeah. That, you know, he he took their games and made something bigger out of them right you know in a lot of cases um argonaut developed croc as a pitch for a yoshi game originally and then got rejected and croc was born on playstation okay um you know but i didn't know that yeah um argonaut uh developed i think weren't they involved in the development of the original star fox i believe so yeah. yeah so i that's Dylan Cuthbert's yeah, company. Right. Star Fox, a lot of people don't know, was primarily made by British people living in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, they had gotten Nintendo's attention for, I think, like a Game Boy game or something that they had made called X mm-hmm. or Cross, something like that. And Nintendo uh, or Miyamoto really liked what they were doing, and they brought them over to Japan, and they... W- created games like star fox you're right um animal planet was being developed for nintendo 64 miyamoto made the decision that this needed to be a star fox game and Mm -hmm. that's how star fox adventures came to be dinosaur planet right that's what i meant animal planet what did i say (laughs) animal planet the the television with jeff corbin yeah right his name was (laughs) zaboomafu no definitely not that it was dinosaur planet yeah um yeah, so, I mean, you know, when you have a legacy like all of these titles, um, you know, your 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 presence is felt everywhere. Your impact is eternal mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. Um, I mean, there will never be, and not because there aren't minds as brilliant as Shigeru Miyamoto, but there just won't be that that moment in time where, like the game modern gaming is like birthed Mm -hmm. like i don't i i I guess you know i sound maybe like you know like we're gonna be stagnant from here on out i think uh, i don't want to sound like he's more uh, i think what you're trying to say is that he's more he he was there for the inception of what modern gaming is yeah and And I, i just don't think anyone will ever have that unique of an opportunity again right yeah yeah um like there will be people who come up with wonderful ideas but their impact 
will never match. Yeah. What I mean, it's, two... everything is. He's like the atom of yeah. like modern gaming, and yeah. that just won't happen again. Um, you know, we've we've seen him over the years at different events, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, there was there was one particular year. It was at E three, either twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen. Um, I really had it in my head that I, this is going to be the year I find a way to meet Shigeru Miyamoto. Mm-hmm. And I had this crazy idea outside of the West Hall of the Los Angeles Convention Center. There's always these SUVs parked there mm-hmm. that have like a Nintendo magnet slapped to the side of them. Yeah. And these are the SUVs that just sit around all day waiting for some big wig at Nintendo to walk out of the convention center and need to take off. Right. And so it was the end of like day one, I think, of that year's E3. And I was like, I'm going to sit. You were there with me. Yeah, I was. Uh, we had a, there were a few friends that we were just chatting with outside. And I was like, I'm going to wait here until someone comes out of that door to get into one of these SUVs. Because there's like two or three SUVs parked here. So yeah. it's like, I know they're waiting for someone. Right. And sure enough, after about 30 minutes, Shigeru Miyamoto walks out with, like, some American Nintendo employees, probably, like, his handler helping him get from one place to the next. Right. And I'm there waiting for him. I've got my Sharpie in hand. I've got my special Mario 3DS cover plates on my 3DS. And I'm, like, waving him down, you know? And I'm like, hey. And then his handler like brushes me off he's like no no i'm not engaging with you you know Mm -hmm. and miyamoto and him keep walking and uh miyamoto gets up to the suv and he looks back and he's like real quickly like he waves me over you know like come on right like hurry up (laughs) and so yeah he takes my sharpie signs my 3ds and you know i thank him and he hops in the suv and he takes off yeah and I I was standing there, like, just bewildered at what just happened, basically. Yeah, like, I I thought it was, I mean, I was surprised that no one else tried to, like, run over. I mean, that's probably what he was worried about, you know, why he waited to get over to the car so he could just... Hop in. Yeah, exactly, and get out of there. Um, But, uh, I mean, I was on cloud nine for weeks. Yeah. And, you know, now that E3 is dead, effectively, probably, even if it does come back in some capacity, mm-hmm. I don't know that Miyamoto is showing up anymore. No. Um, I can see him not. I He's 71. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we live in, like, a world where COVID still pops up here and there, you know? Um, do you, like, okay, so hypothetically, if you could switch out the item that you got signed, those faceplates, yeah. would you do it, like, with a game or something? I would. You would? I would. Yeah. I mean, like, it was what I had, ha- I had specifically brought those faceplates because they were, like, the only Mario faceplates I had, and they're one of the rare ones, they're the wood grain mm-hmm. Mario face, so they feel like they're made of wood. Yeah, right. Um... Yeah, if I had a copy of, you know, Super Mario Brothers for the NES yeah. or the box for the Famicom version, I mean, that that would have been my preference. I mean, I feel lucky to have anything right. at all. Signed by him. You know, and something I got personally signed, that's something I bought on eBay, you right. know. Um, you know, I'll 
all have this moment uh you know just cherished i, I remember we went to the wolfgang puck restaurant afterwards yeah. and i'm just like just staring at it like oh my god yeah how how why how did this work why did it work i can't believe it worked yeah like, what a stupid idea right um i mean imagine how devastated i would have been though and he was like no sorry yeah yeah and, it's, and he could have so easily made that choice yeah it just happened the fact that he turned around and said sure guy yeah it just happened just uh still crazy yeah yeah and, and like i said I, I don't think i'll ever have that opportunity again. no i very few people yeah. ever have. i mean with the death of e3 i'm like lamenting especially for nintendo like never having access to most of those people ever again mm-hmm. yeah uh, yeah with that's very true like, like it'll never be the same yeah i don't think there's ever going to be a place where like every big name at nintendo shows up for mm-hmm. an in-person conference again right i mean maybe you could get something like that at least not anything that's like publicly available yeah i mean back then it still wasn't still wasn't yeah Yeah. um so yeah i mean just a crazy moment i'm so grateful that he turned around and said sure uh but uh yeah it it does make me sad because i'll never get that high again yeah (laughs) no that that was something else like i've met some cool people since then but it's like there is there's no no one i mean i guess maybe as close as you get to miyamoto and he's not he's actually not even as relevant in my opinion Mm -hmm. but hideo kojima maybe right but i feel like he makes himself more accessible he definitely does He does do signings yeah you know like they're very controlled and few in number now Mm -hmm. but they do happen from time to time but like miyamoto i mean my understanding is it's been like 20 years since he's done like a public signing yeah i think it was like at like japan expo in france or something like that in the early 2000s was the last time he did something gotcha Uh, but yeah so just thank you miyamoto for everything and you know i wish you good health and keep keep the good times coming yeah um i i don't know if he's ever gonna listen to this but if he does we like to pretend that they do yeah um yeah he's he there is no bigger legend you know name wise yeah even if he is not as intimately involved with development development of projects he's uh you know his his name is just my understanding is he makes himself available as almost like a consultant yeah for anybody working on a project at nintendo like you can invite me in he, he's often seen as like a producer or executive producer mm-hmm. on a lot of games. Like in Mario Wonder, his name is featured in the credits. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, he is mostly out of game development. Mm-hmm. But, you know, well-earned. Yeah. Oh, you know? definitely. And the fact that he's still with Nintendo and hasn't retired mm-hmm. means he's still having fun. He's still doing cool stuff and... That makes me excited. If Miyamoto's engaged, then I'm engaged. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, speaking of birthdays and anniversaries, um, and Shigeru Miyamoto... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very related. Uh, maybe the greatest game ever created. Yeah, it's in the top two candidates, I mean, it, for it's, sure. it's... Hard to dispute. I mean, some people can say that 
another game is their favorite game. Right. Like a lot. So we're talking about the Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time. Right. From so, a design perspective, right. a lot of people would call this the model video game. Right. And you know, it Ocarina of Time had a direct sequel called Majora's Mask, and there's a lot of people who say I think Majora's Mask is the better game, mm-hmm. and they're not wrong per se. But Majora's Mask doesn't exist. Right. Majora's Mask is made up of all of the assets from Ocarina of Time. I mean, it's it's almost an expansion. Right. In a a large way. Yeah. It's its own game, for sure. I agree. I agree. But, like, yeah, it recycles all the assets. They made Mm -hmm. it really fast. It's an impressive game. But we're not talking about Majora's Mask. We're talking about The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time turning 25. It released on November 21st, 1998 in Japan, and on November 23rd in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, some fun facts. Its budget was over $12 million. Jeez. 200 people developed, more than 200 people developed the game. It was priced at 70 U.S. dollars in 1998. That's crazy. That would make it $132 in 2023 money. Um... The game had five directors, each tackling a different piece of the game. Future Zelda team leader Eiji Aonuma handled the game's dungeons. Mm -hmm. Shigeru Miyamoto essentially served as all of their bosses, tying the game together as the producer. Originally, the game structure was envisioned to work much like Super Mario 64. Mm -hmm. If you remember that game, you have Peach's Castle, and you kind of jump into these portraits and go to different levels. Right. Whereas Ocarina of Time was a much more open and seamless game. Yeah. Um, so uh, Still had loading screens, but yeah. 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 Um, it was originally conceived as a 64DD launch title. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you that don't know, the 64DD was a floppy disk drive attachment for the... Well, not quite floppy. No, it was like they, hard they, they were round disks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, disk drive attachment for the n64 that only ever released in japan and only had like 10 titles or something like that yeah and even those units are pretty scarce yeah oh yeah like doshin the giant that's like one of the Mm -hmm. most expensive games period i think fun fact the the development units are out there for the dd and they're blue they look just like a black one but they're blue nice um so it's often considered to be the greatest game of all time like i've mentioned it holds the highest Metacritic rating of any game ever released. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in in 25 years, no game has surpassed its critical aggregated score, effectively. Um, its influence is still seen today. Mm-hmm. I mean, any game with, like, lock-on targeting... Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, that started that here. That started there. Yeah. And open world pretty much started here. Action adventure game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in a 3D way. Yeah, like this this game had nothing had been seen like it before. No, no. and and um, also uh, I don't think you mentioned this, but you mentioned the price point being seventy dollars. Mm-hmm. It launched with the uh, expansion pack. That's right. So that was a new thing, a new hardware. The expansion pack came with Ocarina of Time, or was that Majora's Mask? Uh, you know what? 
Was Donkey Kong 64 launched with the Rumble Pack, or was that the expansion pack? I can't remember. I think Star Fox had the Rumble Pack. Oh, okay, yeah, I think yeah. you're right. Um, I know that... I don't oh. think Ocarina of Time requires the expansion pack, but Majora's Mask does. Uh, yeah, you're right. Maybe you're right. maybe Ocarina of Time can make use of the expansion or the storage. I think so. Yeah, but something uh, like that. Um, I remember something prohibited me from playing, and it might have been Majora's Mask. Okay, yeah, I think that was Majora's Mask. Um, you know, it, if you try to play the game today, it's still very. Very oh, playable. Yeah. It's very playable. I mean, the, the the controls make. I mean, the only thing that's maybe confusing is you don't have two sticks like the way you do with a modern controller. Right. On the N sixty four, there was only the one control stick. Right. Well, uh, you couldn't rotate the camera in that game. I think. Could you use the C buttons? Maybe. Yeah, you use the C buttons for the inventory items. Right. Um, I mean, so the targeting was a big deal. Mm, like oh, you, yeah. you needed the yeah. Z targeting yeah. in order to uh, help the camera function and right. see the game. It would also, when you didn't have enemies present, it would uh, look forward. Exactly. Like reset the camera. Yeah. And, and it would help you like find things of interest to read yeah. and know and pay attention to. Uh, what makes it stand out so much, aside from all the things we already mentioned, is how memorable it is. And I think everybody who's ever played Ocarina of Time remembers their first playthrough. They remember yeah. where they were. They remember how they got the game. I remember the first time I ever played it. I don't remember buying the game, but I did eventually get my own copy. Mm -hmm. I bought mine at a flea market when I was in Michigan. Okay. And... uh brought it home and my cousin bought a copy separately and we would switch out the freaking memory cards or the game or whatever to like catch up to each other uh, okay yeah oh i know how to do this part give me yeah, a right. cartridge um yeah for me i was visiting my dad who lived a little further south in california and i was hanging out with some kid in the neighborhood and he was talking about the zelda game Mm -hmm. And he was, like, describing this tree to me and how he's stuck and can't get past this. And in my head, the most recent Zelda game I have played is Link to the Past. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking he was talking about, like, there's this, like, little forest area where there's, like, this, like, elf guy sitting on the tree and he's, like, playing a flute or something like that. And I was like, oh, I know how to get past, or I know what to do there. Yeah. Um, and so then I remember going over to his house... And he had an N64, and I did not have one yet. Yeah. And I was like, this is a different game. Yeah. And I just remember spending, I mean, what felt like three or four hours just wandering around Kokiri Village. Yeah. It, that and, first time yeah. you see that is like, like, what? That's all, just that little tiny area. Yeah. You could spend hours there. I remember when uh, Master Quest came out on the GameCube. Yeah. Best Buy had a demo unit going on in okay. the store. And everyone had to go get the sword. Like, everyone in the store had to go get the sword. It was... Yeah. And I'm standing by, like, I yeah. know how to do it. Yeah. Let me show you how to do it. Um, yeah, it was uh, just truly a, a special moment. I, I, I have um, one of those gaming confessions that I'd rather not <laughs> mention. Well, now you have to. I've never beaten Oh, my Ocarina God. Oh, uh, 
the shame. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I picked it back up when they did the 3DS re-release, the remaster or the remake, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, back in 2012, I think it was. Which um, was really good. Yeah, we we actually covered it on the Bit Beacon. Yeah, we did. We managed to get the game. I think a couple days early via a little mom and pop shop we knew of. Yep. And uh, Rick, I think even you wrote a review and everything for I the game. I did, and I beat it. Yeah. Again. Um. So I got to the point. Uh, I was about to go into the Water Temple for the first time as an adult Link. Yeah. And um, I was ready to go and i went to go play it and a friend of ours a mutual friend of ours took it upon himself to (laughs) play a portion of the game for me and ruined my desire to continue playing the the relevance i guess for the reason that that was such an important moment was because uh, i'll i don't know if you want yeah sure go okay um was to enter the water temple, you have to shoot an arrow up into the the eye little switch target thing. Uh-huh. And um, doing that in this new 3D mode back when the yeah. 3DS was brand new and it was a big deal, uh, that was supposed to be special, um, which it would have been. And I was robbed of that moment. Yeah, you were robbed. So that, that kind of turned yeah, you off. Yeah, I like immediately, I was like so upset. And I lost interest. And this person listens to this podcast. Oh, yeah. What I'm talking about. So yeah, he, he knows who he, he is. He knows who he is, and he should be shamed. Yeah. He should feel shame. If I you hope, see him throw rocks. I, I hope you feel bad. You know who you are. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Just talking about it again... <laughs> it enrages you. It, well, it enrages me, but it makes me want to actually go back and finally play yeah, through this game you i don't know how you haven't done it you're yeah. you're missing out on one of the biggest moments in video game history ever and i've played every single zelda game or i've beaten every single zelda game starting from the wii on, or gamecube onward mm-hmm. and there's not a single one i've missed out on and so i'm I'm just, you know, like, I need to go back and Well, to technically, Master Quest is on GameCube, as is the Zelda Okay, I haven't, edition. but it's originally an N64 game. Yeah. So I haven't done it, I haven't finished the N64 games, um, and I feel like I can't, I, I, if I haven't beaten uh, Ocarina of Time, then I can't beat Majora's Mask, and... Yeah. Like, I, I need to do one uh, before I do the other. Now, that's not to say I haven't played the heck out of both of these games yeah i've (laughs) probably spent so many hours on the n64 messing around in ocarina of time and majora's mask playing Mm -hmm. large portions of the games but i never did finish them you should just do it on nintendo 64 like do it on the original hardware because that that last moment yeah the final battle with ganon thinking i would probably I wouldn't do it on N64 because I don't want to spend $150 on some special converter that doesn't introduce any lag plugging it into a modern TV. So what I would do, though, is I have the N64 Switch controller, the official N64 Switch controller. Right. And I'd play the... Virtual console. Well, they're not. it's not virtual console anymore. Whatever. It's Nintendo Switch Online. Same thing. 
N64 version, which is like, it, it, you know, it, it's a more accessible game. It gives me save state so I can, you know, can save and pause the game when it's convenient for me and not when it's convenient for the game. Um, I mean, I don't know. I feel like that's a cop out. Just play it on the original hardware. No, that's too much work for me to do. And it would require me to spend money that I don't feel like spending. Because, uh, yeah, I don't have a CRT TV. I wish I did. Mm-hmm. I wish I had a CRT. Like, it's if I ever see one on the side of a road, I'm stopping. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. checking. I'm going to um, take it home and see if I can plug it in and make it work. That little TV I have on my desk at home yeah. that I use for computer monitor has... It has those, but it's not a CRT. So it's going to intro it basically it's doing a conversion mm-hmm. and that conversion introduces lag. I don't know, man. That it, can, it does. That that thing is old. If you're pure if you're actually gonna have the real authentic retro gameplay, those games were designed to work on a CRT TV. Yeah. They were built like around players using a CRT TV. Yeah. So I feel like if you really want to be authentically retro, that's how you do it. Uh, sure. All right. Well, you have your gatekeeping stuff, and I have my gatekeeping stuff. All right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I really do want to get around to finally playing through them. Yeah, I don't know how you haven't done that. It's embarrassing. Um, but yeah, for me, uh, just especially countless hours with my brother as a kid too. Just us sitting side by side. My turn with the controller. Your right. turn with the controller. Like you die, my turn. You There's know. just so many moments. Like just Hyrule Field, the introduction to Hyrule yeah. Field, the owl, entire Kapoor-Gabor. Saturdays. Yeah. Just, just gone. Long Lawn Ranch. Like yeah. it, um, you remember all of it. You could just sit there and listen yeah. to Melon sing all day. Yeah, right. Um bottom of the well like there's just so many like memorable moments when you walk into kokori village and everything's on fire like uh what are the enemies called stealthos no oh uh dead hands no the the mummies Uh, gibdos they're gibdos gibdos yeah okay they're the ones that like me and my brother used to use a word to describe what they would do to link oh Okay. Like they latch on the link and they like yeah. stop you from moving and they look like naked like mummies. Oh, uh re-deads is what you're re-deads. talking about. Okay, I was like the, Gibdo doesn't. The Gibdos are the ones with the mummy bandages. Okay. But I'm talking specifically about the ones yeah. that you encounter the the zombie ones yeah, the are zombies. re-deads. Yeah, those those frightened me. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um the, the first, sound effect that would play. The first time you see them is when you walk into um Hyrule Castle Town Market mm. as adult. Yeah. Like just coming out of the Wait, what's the Okay, there's you go to the graveyard in mm-hmm. Kakariko Village. Yeah. And you go underground mm-hmm. inside one of the graves. Yeah, so that was when you meet Dampe. Uh-huh. Who is the guy that gives you the hook shot? But I feel like the the it, Rededs were in there. They were, but so what? You become adult Link. Mm-hmm. And you're in the uh, Temple of Time. Okay. You exit the Temple of Time. Right. You're in um, Hyrule Castle Town Market. The squ- yeah, the market. There are Rededs all walking oh, okay. around screaming. Yeah. yeah. And then they, and if they, you let them it, grab you, and that place, like, oh, that 
it was so lively when you yeah. were a kid. You know, it's now, like people bustling and around. Now all those people. They're all dead, and there's these <laughs> zombies walking, yeah. and everything's on fire. Yeah. It's like... It implies that all those like, happy people you yeah, saw... It's so, like, you think back, and you're like, how did they... Right. How did they put this together? Like, how did they... What's the time? Like, seven years. Seven years yeah. in between, yeah. 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 Just how Ganondorf has ruined everything. Yeah, it just... I don't... The experience, though. Yeah. Like, it's... And the contrast. It's a, a master class yeah, in, like, it, it how to communicate story without, like, you know, yeah. hours of dialogue. Right. You know? Like, yeah. And, and when you do, it's like a eureka thing like no one can ever duplicate that or, or you'll know where it's coming from right um okay so uh we're gonna move on to some news now right all right yeah so ocarina of time maybe the greatest game ever made yeah it is for a lot of people um i respect the heck out of it yeah um, you can't not yeah even if you don't like it for some reason you can't not respect it exactly um, so we're going to talk some news now. We got a bunch of Sega topics to discuss this week. Um, the first thing we're going to talk about, though, is Atlas, which is now a subsidiary of Sega as mm -hmm. of almost a decade ago now, I think. Yeah. Um, Atlas being spelled A-T-L-U-S. Right. Not like the map. We talked about, uh, you know, Rick purchased uh, last or Two weeks ago, I should say, mm -hmm. Rick picked up a bunch of uh, Persona games. Which Persona are, Three on every console. Yeah, and they're those are created by Atlas. Yes, um, and uh, Atlas uh, has announced that they are going to be raising the wages of all their employees in Japan by April of 2024. Atlas will have raised the average annual salary of all employees by 15 percent. Now, normally, we're talking about bad news when it comes to employers and employee relations. Yes. So this is nice to hear, you know, an employer doing something good for their people. Yeah. And that, that's pretty significant. 15%. 15% raise? Yeah. That's I mean, that's not even, like, not, a small adjustment. No. That's, like, that's lifestyle changing. Yeah. Like, that's, like, a lot of extra money in your pocket. Right. Um. So, uh, Atlas says these changes are due to their games selling well overseas and that bonuses based on game performance will also become standard at the company. Nice. So, you know, a lot of companies when their games do well, sell so many copies or, uh, when they reach like a certain Metacritic rating threshold, mm -hmm. they give out bonuses or the publishers will give bonuses or extra residuals to the developer yeah um i think it's kind of stupid when things like this are tied to metacritic ratings yeah that's yeah but believe it or not that's like a strong industry standard practice yeah that's like crazy. the game directors are getting huge bonuses based on metacritic scores yeah um yeah it should be based on numbers like i think actually, that's more of a western thing yeah but i think it's probably starting to spread elsewhere yeah um, so primarily the reason they're doing this is to attract and retain their current talent. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a really competitive industry in Japan and Atlas joins other developers like Monolith Soft, Capcom, Koei Tecmo, and Bandai Namco, who have also been increasing their wages across the board. Yeah. Um, which is a great trend. 
You'll love to see it. Yeah, Japan uh, is notorious for paying very small salaries. Like, even, like you were telling me privately, even here, um, you know, it's seen as, especially in the QA areas and stuff, like, it's it's seen as, like, game developers are generally paid low. Yeah. Japan is even lower. Even lower. Now, cost of living is different in japan although some parts of japan are very expensive to live in right uh but game developers and game publishers in japan uh, they also have other benefits that they offer beyond like salary some of these give uh some developers like nintendo they give like a a housing stipend and -hmm. things like that so they help pay for you know where you live and those kinds of things yeah um so you know you got to take that into account too when you look at a person's like total benefit that's that's income in a way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just nice to see someone doing something good and, you know, this continuing to be a trend over and, there. And yeah, you got to give credit to not just to Atlas, but Monolith, Capcom, Koei Tecmo, Banco Nam- Namco Bandai. <laughs> Banco Nandai. That's the title of it. That's the, the title, maybe. 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 <laughs> Banco Nandai. I, mean, uh, I think that wins. Um, so I I mean all these Japanese companies are doing this probably to compete with each other. Let's be real. Yeah, I mean this isn't totally out of their goodwill, right? You know, like I said, this is being done to retain and attract talent. I think the pool is maybe small over there. I mean, we all we everyone knows that Japan has a big population problem. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nowhere near as many young people as there are old people. Nope, and and. They they tend to gear, you know, aim toward other careers, like more serious kind of... Not serious, well, you know, you believe know. it or not, I think in Japan, it's a more accepted role to want to be a game designer. I don't think people necessarily look down on it. Like, it's a, it's a big... Uh, like, at all major colleges in Japan, like, they all offer that mm-hmm. as, like, a career path at their schools. Okay. Uh, you know, when... That- that's probably a modern opinion. one of their biggest exports is video game entertainment right for sure right whereas like i think still here in the states hey ma i'm going to video game school you yeah. know like yeah not everyone's going to be as accepting of that um uh that must have changed because i know back in the day that like when we talked about the uh um those contests that um oh, enix used to yeah. do like those people ta- have talked about some of their stories and what right. it was like with the, telling their parents that I want to be a game designer. I mean, we're going back to the late, the, mid, yeah. late 80s, early 90s now. I think that may have switched a bit. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, look at the success so many people found back then. Right. I mean, like between J- Japan and the West. Oh, like, the perceptions. It, yeah, perception yeah. may have switched. Definitely. Um,. So that that's really it on that story. Just a small topic, but uh, just some some good news. There's not much to say about good news. Bad news is always yeah, more interesting. Right. That's that's where we get all passionate and yeah. start but, disagreeing. Uh, <laughs> our next topic, uh, Rick's going to take this one over. All right. So um, so we have some news coming out of Sega, which is also related to Atlas, since Sega owns Atlas. They. Um, did an interview with CNBC and um, the uh, uh, 
Shuji Utsumi. Yeah, that sounds pretty right. Um, the Sega COO, Chief... What, what is Operating that? Officer. Operating Officer. Um, dispelled some rumors about Sega wanting to be... Or, or positioning themselves in the industry to get purchased. Like we see these acquisitions happening. It's been widely speculated by a lot of people uh, that Sega's kind of seems to be... Positioning themselves yeah. to be bought out. Right. And They've, like, cut, trimmed some fat from, you know, their company and tried to make themselves look a little more lean. Right. And, you know, tried to... I mean, that's just how people have been perceiving right. it. Right. That, that didn't come from any information given by Sega. But now we have Sega actually responding with their chief operating officer, uh... Telling us that that's not their intention. I think we've got a direct quote from him. Okay, go for it. Um, so when asked about the rumors of being purchased by Microsoft, he said, uh, many companies are interested in Sega. We feel honored. We have attractive IPs and potentials. Companies owned by the owner, a strong owner. I don't think that kind of transaction is going to happen. And if my English didn't sound very good there, that's a direct quote. You know, yeah. so... Google Translate. No, this is a, from an English article. Oh, okay. I just think maybe his English isn't, like, right. perfect, you know? Makes sense. Um, and so Sega actually said they're looking to do the opposite of being acquired. They want to do their own acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, Sega already owns Atlas, so... Well, know. earlier this year, they acquired Angry Birds developer Rovio... For $775 million. Yeah, that's a lot of money. That's a oh, big man. chunk of chat, cash. Uh, you know, for Angry Birds, effectively. Yeah. Which um, is crazy. That's interesting. Right? That is interesting. I remember being a little puzzled when I heard about this. I was like, they want Angry Birds? Yeah. they. I guess I could see it as a Sega property. But also, too, does this mean Sega's really trying to lean mobile? Um, I think this is them giving themselves a foothold in the mobile mm -hmm. space. Right. Not only that, Angry Birds is like a movie property now. It is, yeah. They've had like two movies, I two, think, already. Yeah. I saw one in theaters. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, they're clearly, you know, with the Sonic movies, mm -hmm. and now they have Angry Birds movies probably in the future. Uh, and they even mention in the article that Sega is looking to bring some of their IPs outside the world of video games. And it's in the article, it seemed that they were hinting at uh, stuff like Persona and Yakuza, you know, being developed into either movies I or series. I could see Yakuza. That would be crazy. I mean, that would be, I feel like, the easiest one to yeah, adapt. Right. I mean, there is like a zaniness to those games. Yeah. Right, Which, with the cash flying out of yeah. enemies and stuff. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, they could try to keep that zaniness. I would recommend that they do if they try to make oh, a movie. They I mean, like, those games can get really serious, too. Yeah. But I think it's an important part of its identity to keep kind of the silliness aspect of it as well. Yeah, that, that zaniness, for me, is what makes them feel like a Sega game. Right. You know, like you saw the same kind of zaniness in old arcades, you know, um, Sega games like Gunblade and yeah. and those Time Crisis, um, you know, reminds me a lot of, of that. Yeah. It's kind of part of Sega's identity, like how Nin Nintendo 
has theirs and, and their games feel Nintendo. Right. I mean, we're, we're seeing more and more that companies are looking to take their IPs outside of just video games. Yeah. Especially when they can license it or kind of hand it over to like a third party to take care of everything. Mm-hmm. Like Capcom has been making so many... Capcom and Konami have been making a lot of like Netflix anime like TV shows and things like that. We're seeing there's mm-hmm. like four different like Castlevania series now. Yeah. Um and so like this it's free money. Yeah. You know. It is it's kind of surprising it hasn't happened sooner although one could argue that video game movies have been a thing for a long time. Right. They just haven't been successful. Yeah, mostly flops. M- mostly flops. Uh with a few exceptions. Um uh, the 90s Mortal Kombat film yeah. was actually a, a really... I don't know, you could say it's a bad movie, but it was successful. Right, right. I mean, it. the, the theme song alone yeah, that, has... Yeah, that like, was a big Lasted, you know, till now. <laughs> it's even incorporated in the games. So. Oh, they... Yeah. Um, martial arts, like, studios and stuff play that yeah. when, when sparring and yeah. stuff like that. Um, but uh, Techno Syndrome is what that's called. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, we've seen video game movies really kind of take a new turn in the the present. I think there's a little more, like, I did just say that they hand them over to a third party and let them do it, but I think there's a little more, uh, caretaking being done than that. Yeah. But it's almost like they're hiring or shifting people to new roles to oversee those things Mm -hmm. rather than just licensing it out and letting some random foreigner do whatever they want with it mm-hmm. there is sort of like a stewardship over the project yeah. so that it doesn't you know veer too far off from what they would want it to be yeah um like as like you said miyamoto has taken over sort of a new role in this like multimedia portion right. of nintendo um and so i think we're going to see more companies you know especially sega who has such a a wide swath of IPs that could easily be transitioned into, a, you know, a more broad, uh, consumable format. Sega in particular feels to me like they're very gung-ho about these movies because they saw success with the original Sonic movie here, mm-hmm. the recent one. I don't know if they're, you know, not any of the animated films from back in the day, no. but the modern one. So we got Sonic 1 and 2. And as Sonic 2 came out, it came out with the announcement of Sonic Three, and like they, they and a Netflix yeah, series that ties right. into the Sonic movie. Right, I think it's a Knuckles series. Yeah, that's right. Um, and now, yeah, I mean, I it just looks like Sega wants to go big on movies. I mean, the movies are solid. Yeah, they you are. Know, they're you, good movies. You can't. Really they're successful for anything. You know, Sega is making money with those movies. Um. So I'd say let it happen. Yeah. Bring more, bring more, you know, IPs and stuff to film. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of cool to just, uh, imagine that we could be living in a world where we, we get more involved with Sega. We, we talked about Sega a couple weeks ago and how they were talking about wanting, you know, to create a new, the new Sonic, yeah. the next Sonic. Right. And, you know, I imagine they want that. They want to create a big new IP so they can also, you know, spread that IP into other media. I mean, Pokemon's been doing this since day one. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You know, oh, wait. They've got a TV show. They've got movies. They've got before manga, Nintendo got even games. owned Pokemon. Yeah. it was doing that. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Pokemon, the Detective Pikachu film, I feel is maybe not responsible for like this turn of mm-hmm. video game movies, but was kind of the f- the first one. In this. Yeah, I feel like it was the first video game movie that was like. Okay, these can be taken a little more seriously right, now. Right now, and then Sonic came out a year later, mm-hmm. and basically in the footsteps, right, and did even better numbers yeah. than Detective Pikachu did, which is surprising. Yeah. Um. But uh, you know, and now then Sonic Two came out a couple of years after that and did even bigger numbers mm-hmm. than Sonic One did. And it was it's good. It's really yeah, good. Yeah, I, I need to get around to watching the second one. I did enjoy the first one a bit. Um. Okay, so we've got another topic uh, also having to do with Sega, but we're bringing it back over to the United States, and we're going to Orange County, California, Irvine, where Sega America's offices are at. Um, Kotaku broke the news that Sega is planning to phase out, and that's a quote, all of their temp workers by end of February 2024. Most of Sega's temp employees are in the localization and quality assurance departments. Sega says their positions will be outsourced to offices in Japan and Europe. So, you know, layoffs, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're happening all the time. But these ones have a little asterisk with them. Earlier this year, Sega, over 200 employees at Sega's Irvine offices successfully unionized. All of these temporary workers are a part of the union. This affects about 80 of the 200-ish members of the union. The union, Allied Employees Guild Improving Sega, or Aegis, which means protection from the Greek language, has filed an unfair labor practice complaint with the National Labor Relations Board. The The union believes these layoffs are being instituted in retaliation to the in response to the forming of the union right union representative elise williker a senior qa tester at sega says it's disheartening to see such actions from sega as it unmistakably demonstrates bad faith bargaining and a refusal to recognize the valuable contributions of a significant portion of our colleagues We have filed an unfair labor practice charge to call out Sega's direct dealings with members and its breaching of the status quo by telling bargaining unit members that our jobs would be ending shortly. Sega will not be allowed to get away with this unlawful behavior. We call on the company to make all temporary employees permanent and return to the bargaining table in good faith. There is no other just alternative. It's possible that this complaint won't make it through the NLRB investigation before the layoffs occur in February. These things tend to take a while. Right, right. Um, so even if the NLRB finds Sega at fault, these employees will have been laid off. Mm-hmm. But that might put Sega on the hook for basically giving these people back pay of some kind. Right. Um, which... I don't know, maybe Sega is thinking we'd rather give them some back pay than continue to pay them permanently. Right. Um, This is a complex... Yeah, it is definitely a complex thing. And there's a lot of different... There's uh, a lot of stuff we don't know. Yeah. 
yeah, that lot of questions that kind of, we kind of need answers to really to say like who, you know, I don't know what about, you know, what aspects of this are wrong and what aspects of this is, is right. You know, so I can understand from Sega's perspective why they, you know, a Japanese company might see a bunch of Western employees doing this, unionizing and stuff, and just be like, you know, this is a problem for this us. This is not what we signed up yeah, for. Yeah, basically, yeah, this isn't what we wanted, so we're just going to close that office and put it here in Japan. I mean... Not re. I mean, that's going to affect a lot of livelihood. Right. You know? I mean, unions only exist because employers don't treat their employees well so employees feel the need to unionize to get treated the way they feel they should be treated right and i understand that um um and you you know this these uh these layoffs are specifically affecting typically the most poorly paid individuals in the industry it said what qa Quality assurance, which are basically, yeah, you know, game testers, testers yeah. and localization people. And these people are all already temporary Temp. workers, right. so they're, like, even more at will than, you know, at will employees right. are. Right, You know, many of them, I'm sure, don't know from one project to the next if they'll be sticking around or not. Right. Um, so, I mean, there's already probably a sense of... You know, like, oh man, am I gonna be able to? Am I gonna be here in two months? You know, right. But now well, they know they're not gonna be here in two months. Yeah. Um, layoffs are always bad, no matter if you're union or not. Like, we don't like to see layoffs in the games industry, you know. But people move around, you know. People, you know, people end up at other companies, and that's sometimes that's how games get made. Um, you know, but we've been seeing a trend with layoffs, you know, especially on Sony's side of things. Um, I mean, everywhere. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, these employees saw those trends and they thought the way to protect themselves would be to form a union. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I can definitely see why these, these kinds of employees, which are are mostly the 200-ish people um, are from all areas of the company. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of them are in marketing as well. Those people are staying, you know? Yeah, they're not temporary workers. Right. This specifically is affecting their temporary workers. I, I, also, I also question, at the end of the day, I mean, on the face of things, it does have the appearance that Sega might be doing this because they're unionized. And I understand how someone would immediately think that, you know, obviously. Well, the union felt that way. Yeah, uh, and the union as well. I mean, it sounds obviously. like, based on the quote, that they were still but bargaining and still figuring out new contracts with Sega. If you do think about this, though, they are already temp. Like, you were, you know... Unless you got a permanent job, you were going to go. Right. I mean, and that, and then there also, are rules about firing people. Right, yeah, I know that. Yeah, so it's like, you can be fired not for any specific reason, but you can be fired for no reason. Right. 
at least here in California. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, I mean, if if it's determined that these were a retaliatory firing, Sega will be in trouble. Not only will they owe back pay and things like that to employees, they may be forced to offer them their jobs back, mm-hmm. and they'll likely be fined big time by the NLRB. Yeah. Um, but, I mean... I should mention Sega declined to comment uh, for this story. Yeah. they. I mean, which is probably the smart thing to do. Right. Because, um, yeah, I mean, from a public relations standpoint, this doesn't look good in any way it's spun. And no. anything you say is going to make you look bad. Yeah. Um, looking at the details, they are talking about putting their QA team in Japan. I mean... Well, I, to me, it doesn't really scream like... They're not even offering to, like, relocate these people because they're so cheap to begin with, probably. Right. And, you know, they... They they probably... Their offices in Japan and Europe are probably not unionized. Mm-hmm. So they see this as a way to minimize... I mean, this could be a way that they see... This is a way to minimize the union's impact on their operations in, or in the right. U.S. It could be. Yeah. I mean, 80 out of 200 is a big chunk. Yeah, that is. Um, now, I think localization... Okay, this could have an impact on Sega beyond what they're implying. This could have an impact on games releasing with quality... Um, you know, localizations, because mm-hmm. now, now the English is all happening in Europe. Right. Okay, so now I guess we're just getting, like, a British person's perspective on the English yeah, language. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, that's concerning. Uh, that and part's... not to mention that could affect speed of these things getting localized. So, there's no localization happening in Irvine anymore? Is that how this is reading? Um, I mean, it's... All of the, I mean, maybe there are senior people, but like, it seems like the, the grunts, the temps, they're right. all gone. Yeah. And now my understanding, I follow a few localization people mm-hmm. on Twitter, now known as X. Yeah. And my understanding is most of them are all temp workers. Like right. they get an assignment. Yeah. And then that assignment ends, and they got to look for another job localizing a game. Right. Or they get invited to work on the next one. Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. But sometimes there might be, like, a five-month gap right. before the next one. Right. So and that's, like, that's why they're temp. Yeah. Um, now, I feel like companies could do better to streamline that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, But that involves, you know, going back to the development level. Right. That's why I think Nintendo... Well, Nintendo has some union problems, too, that they got in trouble for earlier this year with a lot of their quality assurance people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, the people that are forming unions in the game industry tend to be quality assurance, right. low, underpaid, they're also respected. They're also the departments that are getting the layoffs Yeah, right now from everybody. Yeah. So, I mean... I could understand, and I totally get why they would want to form a union to try to protect themselves. Yeah. Instead, it's possibly had the opposite effect and gotten them all fired. We, it could be that. And there's a good chance it is that. And we'll 
find out eventually. I mean, whenever this, you know, the NLRB gets around to doing their investigation, it'll be curious to see what their findings were. And hopefully, like, all the documentation is going to be available for public reading. Right. Because, um, yeah, I'm curious to see if they are found at fault for if Sega is found at fault for this, like, what will their repercussions yeah Yeah. i'm very curious to see what can be done um but uh yeah we'll we'll keep an eye on this we probably won't this sounds like it might be one of our ongoing stories i imagine come february we'll hear about it again when and if these employees do indeed get laid off unless maybe sega backs off for some reason that's a possibility too um but otherwise sometime next year i imagine we'll we'll see what the findings were yeah um so we are breezing right along all right um we've got one more fun anniversary to celebrate um also you know po- or uh, sorry uh the legend of zelda ocarina of time came out on november 21st in 1998 mm-hmm. in 2003 one of my personal favorite games of all time same released don't gatekeeps i mean i'm just saying mine i'm just speaking for myself i don't want to say our favorite game right um but pokemon coliseum turns 20 years old this year i remember the tv commercials <laughs> describe yeah. it to me uh, it showed the protagonist, Wes, you know, Wes, who's an ex-villain, which makes him edgy and yeah, like cool. Yeah, he's got this like badass look. trench coat. Yeah, um, in like the stadium, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, this camera zoom thing. Yeah. Uh, that's all I remember. Okay. But it was it was like it was cool. Like, yeah. So po- what makes Pokemon Coliseum so special? Um, is that it was the first time we had a th- a Pokemon RPG mm-hmm. in like a 3D format, right. you know, where we weren't looking at pic- like flat pixels on a screen. We had 3D models, exploring mm-hmm. environments. Where you could actually walk around as a character. Yeah, I mean, we had Pokemon Stadium yeah. on the N64, and Pokemon Coliseum is in some ways a successor to Stadium. Oh, yeah. It does pull a lot of assets from the N64 games. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I don't... The models? All the Pokemon models, yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, and... Uh, but it, it included... The primary focus was not just battling computers like it was with Pokemon Stadium. Mm-hmm. There was this huge story mode yeah. tagged alongside of it. It was a... In a lot of ways, a full-blown Pokemon RPG. It is. It is. It's 100%. It's, in my opinion, it's a canon entry alongside Pokemon Red, Blue, Yellow, Gold, Silver, yeah. Crystal, Ruby, Sapphire, Emerald, and so forth. Um, and it was created to specifically tie in with a third-generation series of games, Pokemon Ruby, Sapphire, Emerald, Fire Red, and Leaf Green. Mm-hmm. And you could, after you beat the game, you could connect via the... The, the, the GameCube, yeah, uh, Game Boy Advance cable. cable. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know the official terminology right now. <clears throat> and you could, like, trade with the game. You could send your Pokemon over to it. Um, but some other things set this apart from just being, like, oh, a Pokemon game in 3D. Yeah. So this featured several unique mechanics, specifically Shadow Pokemon. These are Pokemon whose hearts have been artificially closed by Team Snagum and Cypher. 
Yeah. And these are like the kind of antagonist teams in the game. Yeah. Team Snag them. Snag them, they're kind of like grunts. Yeah. You know, the silly, kind of goofy grunts. But Team Cypher were like the real villains behind the whole thing. Uh, The main character, Wes, is able to steal these shadow Pokemon from trainers, usually a special device uh, that he's seen taking from the facility in the intro of the game. And he wears this device, and his companion, Rui... I, I don't know her official name. Uh, I named her Misty. Okay. I mean, she has a mistiest look to yeah, her, for does. sure. Um, I think her name is R-U-I, the canon name. Mm-hmm. Um, she's able to detect when a, an opposing trainer has a shadow Pokemon, and that allows you, the main player, to... Uh, capture that pokemon yeah so you is the first time you could steal a pokemon from another trainer the only time the really. only time yeah yeah i mean unless you use game shark and like, i guess yeah, yeah i did do some of that yeah um <clears throat> so after you caught a shadow pokemon you would need to purify this pokemon and that involved you using it in battle and uh, walking around with it and its purification status would go down you then take it to this special shrine in this certain town and this purification process would happen. Celebi flies in. Yeah, and helps you save the Pokemon. Um, now, while they're in uh, their shadow form, they do have access to like certain abilities and moves that they don't normally. But once you do purify it, those moves do go away. Mm-hmm. I w- also, I don't think you have it in the notes, but it's the only Pokemon game that's exclusively double battles. Like, yes. But Actually, yeah, it oh, is down it's one of the next... Okay, <laughs> sorry. But yeah, let's talk about it. So yeah, the whole entire game yep. is double battles, which means instantly there's an extra layer of difficulty and strategy not ever seen in any main series yeah, game since. Definitely. And, and your starting Pokemon are Espeon and Umbreon, which is like just this... It's wild. ...perfect, <laughs> you know, duality thing. Yeah. Um, the good and evil. Yeah. You know, the night and dark, or night and day. Um, after you purify the Pokemon and beat the game, like I said earlier, you could transfer these Pokemon to the Game Boy Advance games. Um, most of these Pokemon were Pokemon you could not capture in Ruby, Sapphire, Emerald, Fire, and Leaf Green. They were mostly Johto Pokemon. Yes. Um, so this gave you access to, like, the legendary beasts, like, uh-huh. uh, Suicune, Entai, and Raikou. Raikou. Um, there were quite a few Gen 3 Pokemon, too. Yeah, yeah, there were a handful of Gen 3 Pokemon as well. Um, but, uh, you, uh, and you could also, via a special battle mode, you could unlock a Ho-Oh for transfer to your right. game as well. Right. Um, you had to do 100 battles in a row, and you only had like three continues, so you could only lose three times. Yeah. Otherwise, it would reset the whole entire thing. That was uh, the Stadium Tower thing, right? Mount Battle. Mount Battle, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you just kept going up these platforms 100 in a yeah. row. Yeah. I remember, I did it. Um, I did it to the soundtrack of the Six Flags. <laughs> really? Bum, 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 bum. I literally, I'm not kidding you. I sat down when I was. It was high school, so I was yeah. like a freshman or a sophomore, I think. Yeah. And uh, I just grinded all 100 battles in one sitting and had that song on loop all day long. We like to party. <laughs> so, yeah, whenever I play that game, I, I like associate that 
that song. song yeah. When I replayed it during the pandemic, I did Mount Battle again. Yeah. And I had that shit going. <laughs> Jeez. <clears throat> Um, so, uh, yeah, the double battles were a huge aspect and, uh, I've heard that the second DLC for Scarlet and Violet is going to exclusively use double battles. Wow. Yeah. So kind of cool. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And like I previews just went out for the second DLC. They invited some members of the press to try it out Mm -hmm. and apparently it's pretty challenging. Like, wow. you have to have some strategies for these battles. It's weird. We've seen a lot of kind of callbacks. Not a lot, but a number of recent callbacks to Colosseum, I feel like. Dude, don't even get my, like, brain thinking. Like, I, I, you know, it's just a weird thing. I don't think anything of it, but, like, Shadow Pokemon were introduced into Pokemon Go. Right. Clearly, That's like, the only... That's, like, the most direct reference we've seen to Pokemon Colosseum. Yeah. And Pokemon XD Gale of Darkness, which we'll talk about another day. Yeah. Um, like, referred to by, po- like, modern Pokemon. Yeah. They've been largely ignored over Yeah, the oh yeah. But, I mean, if they're introducing or making... Ex- did you say exclusive double battles in the DLC Part 2? It's from what I was reading, all the battles that people took part in. Not wild battles, but, like, trainer, trainer battles, battles. were all double battles. Okay. So you may want to work on a double battle team yeah. strategy before... I mean, that is what... Col- Coliseum's the only other game to yeah. have done that. Um, this is just a DLC, not a whole game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so some fun facts. It's set in a brand new region, or at the time it was brand new, called Or O-R-R-E. Mm-hmm. Phoenix, Arizona of all places, is cited as being the inspiration for the region. I can see that. <laughs> now that I, yeah, I didn't I mean, even know Remember that. Phoenix, Arizona in the early 2000s, you know? Yeah. What's what's the name of the, the town, the first big town you go to? Oh, I do. I, I don't It's got this that. cool... It's got like, a big fountain in front. Grungy. Oh, no, no. Not Phoenix City. Um, the first, like, kind of shady... Oh, the under... Well, the under is the area under. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, the um, really brown kind of yeah, like yeah, and it's industrial. got like neon signs and industrial like, everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I forgot what it's called. Oh well. I know the city you're talking about. Yeah. Um, the kids grid. Yeah, yeah that's like the, that? the network of like yeah. kid spies who are trying to like take down <laughs> I love Team that. Cypher. I love that stuff. Duking. Yeah. Yeah, like the Mirror B. Mirror B, the greatest Pokemon trainer yeah. of all time. They need to bring him back. Yes. Um, so players who pre-ordered Pokemon Coliseum in the U.S. were given a bonus disc for their GameCube, which would allow them to connect it to Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire for the Game Boy Advance to download Jirachi to their games. Mm-hmm. Outside of Pokemon Go... This disc is the only possible way that players have it a chance at obtaining a legitimate shiny Jirachi. The chances are the chances are one out of seven thousand two hundred to get a shiny from the disc. Wow! So yeah, in every other game Jirachi has been in, which is like almost none, it's shiny locked. Yeah. I think in uh, Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl you can get a gift Jirachi. Yeah, but it's shiny locked. Yeah. Um, and most other Jirachis have just been distributed as part of events. Right. So those are all just yeah, those duped are, yeah, Pokemon, clones essentially. Of each other. Um, 
but yeah, if and it wasn't apparently it was not intended for um it to be shiny, but I guess due to some glitch in the programming, it was able to be shiny. Gotcha. And Pokemon has basically had to recognize that Jirachi can be shiny. So things like Pokemon Home and Pokemon Bank, they do checks for things like that. And if a Pokemon isn't supposed to be shiny, mm-hmm. it, it won't like accept it. Right. You know? So they ha- they were forced to, to acknowledge to, that it yeah. could happen. Here's oh, something wow. that's crazy. If you got shiny Jirachi from Pokemon Go and you transferred it to Pokemon Home mm-hmm. and you wanted to bring it to Scarlet and Violet, you can't. Really? Yes, because for whatever reason, when it comes to like mythical and legendary Pokemon, the mo- like Sword and Shield, Scarlet and Violet have something where they won't let you bring that shiny into the game mm-hmm. if it's from Pokemon Go unless you already have one captured from one of the main series games. That has to be shiny? Yes. So if you what? want to bring your Jirachi from uh, Pokemon Go that you've transferred to home, you would have to have one of these Wishmaker Jirachis from this from GameCube disc. bonus disc. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So it's stuck in home yeah. or Go wow. forever. Unless they roll back that restriction at some point. Right. Well, bank, you know, is we don't <laughs> we don't know how much longer that's going to be around. So right. that would mark the end of this thing. Getting... Yeah. So you would need to get your hands on a shiny Wishmaker Jirachi soon. Like now. <laughs> um. So fun fact about the bonus disc: it now is more valuable than Pokemon Coliseum itself, mm-hmm. which is already a really valuable game. This bonus disc sells for about two hundred dollars complete in box and three hundred dollars sealed on ebay i checked these numbers just yesterday wow japanese players who pre-ordered were given a special disc that allowed them to unlock celebi in pokemon coliseum but they first had to complete the game fully and have every single shadow pokemon fully purified another little known fact in japan e-reader cards for the game boy advance were released that you could connect to your gamecube mm-hmm. and these e-reader cards would allow you to scan in new trainers into a special uh, battle that would allow you to get new shadow Pokemon not featured in the game previously. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was this feature was entirely cut from the North American release, and uh, these cards are incredibly valuable. Oh, I and bet. Rare. I bet. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure a lot of the e-reader cards, just in general, are pretty valuable they are yeah Yeah. i mean these are probably the most obscure and the most rare i have a bunch of the ruby and sapphire e-reader cards that are released in english and they're pretty valuable oh yeah um so for me uh just a couple of personal memories about the game uh one was like i said earlier this game came out when i was in high school and i remember the day before it came out I had it pre-ordered at an electronics boutique, or an EB Games, maybe it was then. Yeah. And I remember calling them the night before and being like, hey, you still have my pre-order, right? You have it in stock, it's coming out tomorrow. And the guy on the phone is like, oh, you can come pick it up now if you want. Yeah. So you got it one day early. I remember this day. Yeah, I I was like, mom, can we please go to the mall? You took the next day off school. Yes, I was able to convince my mom to let me stay home the next day. 
and I stayed up all night that night. Yeah, I remember. I was yeah. I was at school. And you're like, what the heck? Where's Taylor? <laughs> right. And I come the next day, and I'm like, I've been playing Pokemon Coliseum. It's the yeah. greatest Already thing beat ever it. Made. No, no. That, that took me a few weeks to get through. Yeah. Because uh, I don't think I had a strategy guide or anything like that yet. Um, But, uh, yeah, like, that was a big deal for me. And I replayed the entire game during the pandemic. I got a real hankering for it. Um, and something... F- fun that i did after beating it i had purified all the pokemon and i was like you know that japanese bonus disc lets you get celebi mm-hmm. if you have a completed save file for pokemon go or for uh, pokemon coliseum and i a couple years earlier i had purchased a japanese copy of pokemon coliseum that someone had included the bonus disc inside the the case of the game I was like, I have the bonus disc. I was like wondering, like, is there some way that I can somehow get this Japanese bonus disc to recognize my American save file? Mm-hmm. And I have a, a kind of disc that lets me region unlock my GameCube so I can play any game. It's like a action replay yeah, disc. Yes, okay, I have one of those. And it lets you boot any region game. Um, and so I... I also am able to extract the save files thanks to this action replay disc. I can run some special software on my GameCube. And so what I did is I I backed up my uh, English save file. Mm -hmm. I took it to a hex editor online. And I was able to edit the specific line of code that changes a save file from being like north american or like japanese yeah. it's literally just like changing like a couple bytes mm-hmm. and sure enough i changed it i put it back on the memory card i launched the japanese bonus disc and there it goes it recognized my save file as being a japanese save file i got the Jeez. cool celebi animation and celebi was loaded onto my save file and then bring the save file back to the computer reconvert my save file to i thought you said that this thing gives you jirachi no no no. the japanese bonus disc gives you celebi as a bonus for 100 percenting the base game got it the the american bonus disc had nothing to do with pokemon coliseum really okay all right i i got you yeah so i then took uh you know, I reconverted the save to my North American file, and I logged into my game, and inside the PC box is the Japanese event Celebi. Mm-hmm. So I was able to transfer that, you know, to my games. I took it all the way through Pokemon Bank and then into Home. You so. didn't sit there and try to <laughs> try to get a shiny soft reset? No, I don't think the Celebi is okay, soft resetable. It's, it's a totally different uh, yeah. function. You're not connecting it to a Game Boy in that moment. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was pretty cool to, and I, I didn't read any like tips on how to do that. I don't know if I'm the first person to think to do this, but it worked. And I thought for sure I was going to like corrupt my save file or something, but just changing that one byte of text, got the disc to recognize it, no problem, deposit it correctly into the save file. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's. That's my most recent Pokemon Coliseum memory. <laughs> gotcha. Pretty good. Um, yeah, I I just remember the under. The, uh, and my first like impression of that area yeah. of the game. I got there and I'm like, this is the greatest Pokemon game that's yeah. ever existed. Oh, yeah. Existed. I mean, funny enough, the game was rated E. 
Yeah. But, like, if you didn't know any better, this would be, like, a mature-rated Pokemon game. Like teen. Just, teen, at least. Yeah, just visually. Yeah. It has, like, a... It, it looks adult. Dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very dangerous. <laughs> um, yeah, the under... Just the concept yeah. of an underground city with neon lights and... Yeah, when you go in it for the first time, it's yeah. like, whoa... <laughs> Just crazy, just, and then and then just like sewer water around, yeah, like surrounding it, just uh, it, just crazy. It, yeah, it almost has like a Final Fantasy seven ish yeah, kind of um, look to it. Crystal Dynamic was the team, right? No, Genius Sonority. That's right. Who after Pokemon Coliseum and its sequel, Pokemon XD: Gale of Darkness. They went on to do Pokemon Battle Revolution for Wii, right. which unfortunately did not feature any story RPG no, content. It, it was just like a stadium style game. A good one. Good one. But um, the Pokemon company, Game Freak, absorbed most of their employees. Mm-hmm. And they all started to work for Game Freak and work on the proper Pokemon games. Um and Genius Sonority is a much smaller company now. They still actually do work with the Pokemon company. They develop stuff like Pokemon Shuffle, mm-hmm. uh, Pokemon Cafe Remix, okay. and a lot of their kind of smaller mobile-centric efforts. Gotcha. So they're still out there, but they're not equipped in any way, shape, or form yeah, to, for, for to give us another one. Pokemon Coliseum 3, you know? Yeah. Um, we should mention the sequel real quick, uh, Pokemon XD, Gale of Darkness. It's a direct follow-up uh, mm-hmm. to Pokemon uh, Coliseum, but it is you, there. there's a new protagonist, uh, but there are a lot of recurring characters, a lot of recurring locales. It is It recycles a lot of stuff from Pokemon Coliseum. Yeah. It only adds a handful of new areas. You are largely revisiting the same place. same stuff. And for the first, I never beat it back then because I felt it was a little derivative. Mm-hmm. But during the pandemic, after I did Coliseum, I was like, okay, time to do XD yeah. finally. Can you run through the grass in that game and like find wild Pokemon? Okay, so there, yeah, that's something we should mention. Pokemon Coliseum had zero wild Pokemon. Yeah. You yeah, only captured Pokemon from trainers that had shadow Pokemon. Right. Pokemon XD Gale of Darkness um, did have wild pokemon sort of you could leave um you could leave treats in these particular locations and return to that location like 10 15 minutes later and a wild wild pokemon could be there Mm -hmm. but when i say wild we're talking like a pool of like three or four pokemon per locale yeah i gotcha um so no random battles in the grass Okay. But you could catch non-shadow Pokemon. So, um, you probably know this story, but I got ripped off hard by GameStop back in the day when XD came out. I pre-ordered the game, mm-hmm. and I can prove it, because I have the pre-order bonus <laughs> sealed, still, right. the GameCube skin. And when I when the game came out and I came back, they told me they didn't have my copy or they couldn't find my pre-order. And I just never got one. It was already sold out, you know, after after that. Oh, like, well, I mean, I'm sure they got a restock eventually. I know for me, I didn't even have it pre-ordered. 
I remembered that it had come out like a week earlier or something. Yeah. Funnily enough, I got it at the GameStop just down the street from here. Um, my mom was shopping at Target or something. I was like, oh, I'm going to go to GameStop real quick. And they still had XD and they had the pre-order bonus and they, you know, they yeah. gave me both when I picked up the copy. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, the pre-order bonus was like the skin yeah. for your GameCube. Yeah, it was a sticker. Like, I never put skins on my No, consoles, I didn't either. And but I, I wanted... I, I kept that sealed. Yeah. But yeah, I just didn't get the game because that... Yeah. Otherwise, I would have had the game. What's cool about XD was Shadow Lubia. Yeah. Which was not just a normal Shadow Pokemon. Lugia got like essentially an alternate form, mm-hmm. like a, a complete redesign of what Lugia looked like. Like his color scheme and everything was different. He didn't just have like a shadowy aura around him like the other Shadow Pokemon do. Yeah, right. Um, and yeah, the whole point of the game is like, or a big part of the game is getting this Lugia and, like, purifying him ultimately. And, like, Pokemon Coliseum, you could get Ho-Oh into your Game Boy Advance games. This would allow you to get Lugia into your games. And what was really special about this Lugia is that it knew uh, Deoxys' signature move, Mm. uh, Psycho Blast or something like that, which it's not something that Lugia can ever learn normally. And that's the only way to get Lugia with that move. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, it was fun to finally replay that during the pandemic as well. Yeah. Um, we've largely come to an end here. Yeah. This is going to be our shortest episode ever. Wow. We actually did it. We actually made a short episode. Wow. (laughs) What? A minute and an hour and 32 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I meant. Um, so again, apologies for this being pre-recorded, but you know, we wanted to make sure we didn't have an off week. Yeah. And so uh, while there's not a whole lot of, I'm sure there's going to be some big breaking news that we're going to have to wait. We're just going to have to, yeah, <laughs> yeah. just going to have but, to deal. Uh, with I hope it. you enjoyed, uh, you know, us uh, revisiting some memories. It and... was a good tenth episode. Yeah. End transmission. <laughs>